You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Last week, we spoke uh, about the beheading of John the Baptist, but particularly the gospel to Herod. How many people were here last week? I'm going to do a very quick synopsis. What I talked about is King Herod is stuck in this interesting place where he's greatly hearing John the Baptist, but yet it says he's perplexed, but yet gladly hears him. Ultimately, though, he beheads John the Baptist because of an oath that he made, and it says this, that he was sorrowful in doing this, but because of the oath he made to the people and the fear, he went along with it. And what we talked about last week is this idea of what is the gospel to Herod and what is the gospel to us? What does that mean? What would God have said to Herod in that moment? And what my concern is, as a Christian culture, we've developed an insulated society which honors behavioral management and honestly sin suppression, where something's going on in our hearts and rather rather than being able to be vulnerable with one another in the right proper source that God's given us and being able to own where we're at, we, like Herod, live in this insulated place of fear of what people will think and ultimately, that type of fear will lead to a compromise where we see Herod cutting off John the Baptist's head. My hope is that at this church, we would develop a culture of vulnerability. That rather than just uh, behavioral management that kind of says, how are you doing? It's doing great. And then we go right for the weather. That's the first thing we talk about. Weather, uh, men, we go weather, sports, right? And then after that, it takes once you get to know somebody, then you start being able to let down your guard. That's typically the thing. Women, I wouldn't know what I'm guessing weather is probably the first. And then I'm sure there's something that's after that could be sports. You never know, but we honor a culture that's not vulnerable, but is kind of on the surface put together. My hope and my desire is this, that we would see that God's finished work on the cross allows us to be real with ourselves. We don't have to fake. We don't have to pretend that we're something. We don't have to pretend that we've got it all together. We can simply expose our hearts to God and say, I'm messed up, I'm broken, and I need your grace and your forgiveness. Let me be clear. That doesn't mean that it's an excuse for doing what we want to do. That's not what grace is. It's not that I go, well, I'm broken and God loves me just the way I am. I do whatever I want. That's not it. But equally, it's not, I'm scared that God doesn't love me, therefore I'm going to do everything right so he'll continue to love me. Grace is radically different. It's not religious in its nature, nor is it irreligious. It is a one-way street of God's love towards us and our response to him. My desire is that we would develop a culture of vulnerability, that we would own the brokenness of our hearts, not run from it, but bring it to God. Let's move forward this morning. If you have your Bibles, if not, the seat back in front of you, there is one. That's our gift to you if you don't have one. We're going to look at Mark chapter 6. I'm going to give you a few minutes to find that. I'm going to read... Um, quite quickly, just due to the amount of scripture that I need to cover to set the context of this, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30, we're talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Then we're actually also going to cover the 4,000 as well today, just because of the theme of this message. Starting in verse 30, the scripture tells us, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all the things they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place, And rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on foot from them all over the towns and got there ahead of them. 
When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and into the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But verse 37, Jesus says, But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to them, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups of green, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were all satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This morning, I want to talk for a few moments about spiritual maturity. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? The book of Hebrews chapter 6 tells us, and actually commands us, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. We think about Christianity, our spiritual lives. How do we know we're mature? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? How many people remember their childhood, like in vivid detail, lots of childhood memories? How many don't don't remember any childhood memories? That's basically me. I have speckled memories. I hear people talking about like it was last week, it was their memories. Yesterday I was going through some old baseball and football cards. My uh, older brother and I collected everything. Ken Griffey Jr., we've got literally hundreds of Ken Griffey Jr. baseball cards. What a sad ending to a career if you're familiar with that too. But I'm going through these. My parents just moved to Buffalo, and in doing so, they packed all of my life into six boxes, which is uh, kind of sad when you really think about it. But everything I have, and I don't remember what's in it because I haven't been to my, um, the house that I grew up in uh, any consistent basis for a long time. So I get these six boxes. My parents were passing through town. They gave me these boxes, and I just opened them up, and I'm going through everything that I had. So, I mean, there's random just junk. I've got autographs of... You know, different sports people, uh, all bobbleheads. I'm not really sure how that ever became a thing, but I got a bunch of bobbleheads. I've got all these cups and a bunch of trinkets and stuff that doesn't mean anything. And as I'm going through these baseball cards, I'm thinking, uh, man, I wonder if there's anything worth anything. So my wife and I, as she's sitting there kind of organizing, I'm like, honey, we'll go, we'll go out to eat after I'm done. So I'm going through all these stacks of cards. And every once in a while, I would see one of those cards that would bring back uh, not just the nostalgia of opening a pack of cards, but I would see it and I would remember that card. I remember exactly what it looked like. And over and over and over. And in thinking through this week, thinking about spiritual maturity, I remember growing up. And when I was a real little kid, and I'll still see this uh, watching Jesse and Ashley with their girls, where they're almost trapped in their little bodies. No, no pun intended. I guess they are trapped in their little bodies. But where they're trapped in the sense where Jesse will tell them to do something right. And in wanting to do right, it's almost this internal conflict of saying, I want to do it, but I can't, but I won't, but I can't. And you can see the wheels turning. And I remember as a really young kid, I can only, I only have a kind of speckled memories But I remember wanting to do the right thing, but I couldn't do it. That's immaturity. Then I realized when I became um, an adolescent, became a teenager, then I knew what was the right thing to do, and I chose not to do it, right? Okay, I was the only guy that did that. So when I was little, 
I, I was con- totally confused. I didn't know. You know, I, I, wouldn't, I would try to, I, I would kind of want, I would understand, I would comprehend. My dad would say, do not do this. And I'd go, yes. Or he would say, if, you know, you need, to, you need to settle down. Like, I mean, whatever it was. Like, or you're going to have to go to your room. And you would feel that in you. Like, ah, and you just start crying. You don't know why. You just couldn't control it, right? I don't, understand, I don't really remember what I was crying over, but I couldn't control it. As I got older, though, then I knew what I was before. I didn't know right from wrong, and I learned right from wrong. But then I got older, and as I became a teenager, then I knew right from wrong, but I chose wrong anyways, right? Then as I became an adult... Now I'm trying to, not only discerning what is right and wrong, but maturity, making the right choice. Now, how do we know we're spiritually mature? I want to suggest that it's different than behavior. I want to suggest to you that it's different than um, scriptural understanding or knowing the Bible, because I think that all of us here can have great, uh, wonderful biblical literacy. We can understand the Bible, but yet be uh, biblically immature. And when we just read this idea... Or this story, it's not even an idea. It's hard for me to believe it, to be honest with you. Imagine you're with Jesus walking. You, 11 of your friends, you have nothing to eat. And Jesus looks at you as it says to us in verse 37. And you say, Jesus, we need to send them back to, to the town, get some, get some food to eat. And Jesus looks at you and says, you feed them. How would you feel in that moment? Uh, I would say that's totally impossible. There's 5,000 people, right? Our groceries don't even last a week. How am I going to pay for or be able to organize, let alone be able to pay for 5,000 people eating food? That's a lot of food. If you've ever organized a free event with food, you know how much that goes. People that can't even eat a lot of food are just shoveling in plates of pizza. When it's free food, people show up. They got 5,000 people there, 5,000 men. And what we understand historically, or at least scholars believe, that that was just 5,000 men. There were women and children pushing that number well above 5,000. Well, well, well above 5,000. Amen. Jesus tries to feed them. What does he say? What food do we have? I think it's, it's amazing that the creator of the universe asks them, what do you have? He doesn't just say, you know what, I got that. I'm just going to create something out of nothing, which he could have done. He's the creator. That's what we understand. He doesn't just create something. He asks us, what do you have? I was reading a commentary this week. John Calvin writes about this passage. And he says that it's not only that God desired for them to be eyewitnesses of a miracle, but that they would be participators in his divine nature. That they would participate in doing something. Have you ever had God do something in your life that you look back in hindsight and you 100% know God was involved? 100%. That's something that you can reason out and you go, I'm not not really quite sure or that was natural or, you know, somebody left a window cracked open or whatever. Or you kind of look back and you can kind of, I'm talking about something that is completely, this is God and or impossible. This is God and or impossible. There's no kind of reason of use of being able to do that. I look at my particular life and I know God healed me when I was about 15 years old of TMJ in my jaw. I couldn't, my jaw would crack every time I'd open my mouth. I was prayed for, and it was healed. It stopped. 
It wasn't one of those things that I could look back at and go, oh, it just gradually got better. I went, it hurt, I was prayed for, it's better. There is no negotiating of something happened. I can't convince myself that my jaw was any better. Uh, I tried that many times. It actually got to the point where my dad said to me, Jared, we're taking you to the doctor this week. I said, Dad, I'm going to a service this week that they're praying for healing. He said, that's fine. If, and I love this. This is great. If you don't get healed, we're going to the doctor. That's a good one, right? My mom, a few years back, who has struggled with illness and uh, physical pain almost her whole life, went to a, uh, was actually healed miraculously of fibromyalgia, which, if you're familiar with that, is uh, incurable. It's not something that can be healed. My mom had a growth on her thyroid. She went to the doctor. The doctor said to her, you know, going kind of through their medical history, and um, she said, okay, so you have fibromyalgia. My mom said, not, you know, like, I've been healed. She just said, no, I actually don't have it anymore. I'm healed of that. And the doctor said, well, then you're misdiagnosed because that's incurable. You can't be healed. So they looked at the spot and they said, okay, we're going to do a biopsy on this thing to make sure it's not cancerous. So they set up the time to do it. They came back and did another scan and it was gone, disappeared. And the same doctor that says that can't happen read it. And I'm, this isn't anti-doctors at all. This is just simply saying there's things that God does in our world. And when he does, there is no explanation. There's not something that I can look at and say, well, the spot, you know, the growth just decided to leave, right? It just, I'm not a big fan of your thyroid. I'm going to go find somebody else's. It doesn't do that. It's there and it stays, right? That is, but what we have and what we serve is a creator who doesn't just interrupt our everyday normal life. He doesn't just occasionally interrupt, but he is intimately involved in. So God not only heals the miraculous, but he delivers drug addicts, delivers them 100%. And it's not just something that's just a long, drawn-out process. It can be God can work in that way, or he can move immediately. Now, the majority of us here, I would probably say all of us have, Perhaps you haven't, though, have experienced something, maybe not to the dramatic effect of feeding 5,000 people, but you've looked at something in your life where God has moved so miraculously that there's nothing you can do other than say, God was involved. Can anyone say something? Amen, oh me, oh my. Whatever it is. You've seen God do something in your life, and you look back, and whatever that is, something was not here, now God moves, now it is here. Now, if I was a part of the feeding of 5,000, if Jesus asked me for what food I had, I gave him seven loaves, right? And he multiplied it and fed 5,000 people. And then I'm the guy with the backpack with the, picking up the food. I'm going to look at that and go like this. Anytime God wants food, he can do it. Any, anytime Jesus wants to multiply food, he'll do it. Now, turn with me two chapters over just to Mark chapter 8 and watch this because I want to teach you about spiritual maturity and recognize God's action in our lives because you would think in that moment, if God did that, I would believe forever. Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000. These are two separate stories. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Verse 4, and his, disciple, his, his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? Really? Really? 
People, people think like this, this, you know, one of the, one of the kind of uh, attacks against Christianity is that, you know, a bunch of people got in a room and wrote a book so that we can spiritually manipulate people. Um, if I was trying to write a story to manipulate people, I would not show how blatantly dumb that is. I'm just being honest. You two chapters ago, like if I was the, I'm not much of an editor, but if I'm editing that and I'm going through it and I'm trying to figure out how I can master this religion that's going to control people, I wouldn't be like, hey, two chapters later, I think we've got a little bit of an error. Well, what happened? One minute he did that and the next minute we don't believe. I would say next chapter, Jesus, I know how to do this. No, what, 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 what do they say? And his disciples said, no one can do this. This shows us that spiritual belief is not a matter of experience and or intellectual assent, but a gift from God into our hearts, not of our human ability, but God's divine grace. They see a miracle, and yet they disbelieve. Jesus then asks, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, set before the people, and they sat them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, watch this, and having blessed them, he said to them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat, and his disciples and went to the district of, this is our only hard word today, Dalmanutha, all right? Dalmanatha. I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. I've never been there. Hope to be. Verse 11, watch this. Now you'd think again, you would think again, we got this. We know what we're doing now. We've seen Jesus feed 5,000, 4,000, right? If I was with Jesus and I saw him do 5,000, I saw 4,000, but like, Jesus, there's way less people here. You did last time. That'd be my, that'd be my first, I'm just saying. I'm not sure I'm saying I'm a man of faith. I'm just a man of a reason. Verse 11, watch this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. That's interesting. The Pharisees watch food multiplied and ask for a sign. Verse 14. I want you to see the hardness of the human heart. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. You'd think again. Just being honest here, right? You forget it once. I'd be like, need bread, okay? Round two feeds 4,000. You got leftovers. Next thing you know, verse 14, here we are. We got 12 guys in a boat. Verse 14, now they forgot to bring the bread. Now, who was the bread guy? We know Judas was the money guy. Who's the bread guy? Who's getting less rocked on right now? Bro, if you forget the bread one more time, I'm throwing you in the water, period. No doubt about it. You forgot the bread. Now, this is the third time Jesus is going to have to work a miracle here. Probably, you're, you know, you're kind of stressing them out a little bit here, right? All right. What does he say? Now, they had forgotten to bring the bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the, leaven, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Could you imagine Jesus just sitting there? 
And, you know, they don't, Jesus doesn't know. His responsibility is, hey, I'm, I'm God, fully God, fully man. My responsibility is, you know, being the Messiah, not necessarily carrying bread right now, okay? So you got the bread guy, whoever that is. Let's just say it's Matthew for the sake of it, all right? Matthew is the bread guy. And he realizes the moment Jesus says, the moment he says this, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he sits there and he's like, <sighs> again. And they began discussing they had no bread. And what does Jesus say? Verse 17, and Jesus was aware of this and says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I'd be like, because we forgot it two other times. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having ears to see, but you don't see. Having ears to hear, but you don't hear. Again, what did I say about maturity? Growing up when you're small, you don't have the ability to reason. But as you get older, you then have the ability to, but consciously choose the opposite, right? When I was a little kid, I didn't know right from wrong. I was stuck. As I became a teenager, then I knew right from wrong, but I chose wrong anyways. Jesus is saying, you're stuck, You're spiritually idle right now. You have eyes to perceive, but you don't see anything. You hear it, but you don't hear anything. You've got the ears. You have the capacity, the ability. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? What's spiritual maturity? I want to suggest to you that it's growing in faith with God. God doesn't interrupt our lives, stitching once in a while, moving our lives, and then back away and we say, God, where are you? But God is not interested in interrupting your normal life. He's interested in transforming your everyday life. Totally different. I'm convinced that the majority of Christians live from a perspective of we just live our everyday good lives and occasionally God comes in, kind of like the Hunger Games. If you've seen the movie, you're up in a tree and you're going, God, I've been good. And then he sends a little basket down for you. Like, oh, what did I get today? An answered prayer. Thanks, eye in the sky. And then he disappears, right? Then he comes back again. Like, I've been performing well for you. I'm Stuck in a tree and my leg hurts. And here's another little basket that floats down to you. I'm convinced that we spend most of our times as theologically Christians, but practically deists. That we live feeling, believing that there's a God who's real. But practically speaking, we feel that he lives in the clouds, occasionally interrupts. Kind of, you know, the whole basketball thing's turning, he moves it back. I want to suggest to you that God is trying to work something in the history of your life. Not interrupt your everyday life, keep you on track. He's trying to change the way you think. The Pharisees say, give us a sign. Jesus says, I already did. I just fed 5,000 people. I'm not going to give you a sign. Why? Because you won't see it if if it's right in front of your eyes. We see the same Pharisees and the Sadducees ultimately condemning Jesus to death. Later on, we even see in the book of Acts, after his resurrection, a man at the temple gate called Beautiful healed. What happens? He runs up. He's leaping for joy, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees say, we got to stop this guy. We have to stop him. Although it is an absolutely untestable miracle, this man couldn't walk and is healed now. And they said, we still don't believe. I think that's amazing. 
it shows us that belief is not just a matter of the intellect, it's actually more a posture of the heart. Talk about spiritual belief here this morning. What does that mean to have faith for God? Because my concern is, and I'm not speaking, I'm speaking directly to me because as much as I think how goofy they are, and I'd love to just bash on them, I'd never do that. The truth is, I do that countless in my own life. How about you? You see God come through something, and the next thing you know, you face a new test, a new challenge, and the first thing you think is, I left the bread. God does, God moves in your life and we see him doing something. And the next thing you know, we come up to the almost the identical same test, a transition of jobs, a financial difficulty, a family difficulty, whatever it is. I love to look at the disciples and go, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, I would ne- if I saw them feed the 5,000, feed the 4,000, I would never think that. But the truth is we do that all the time. God moves in our lives and what happens rather than understanding that he's actually trying to change the way we think, perceive reality, and live from his perspective, not ours. We just say, God, what are you doing? Where are you? You're gone. He warns them, beware of the leaven. Now, I've shared my one baking story. Literally, I have one baking story my whole life, other than frozen pizza, and it went bad, and it was a peanut butter pie. So I'm not much of a baker, um, But I do understand a little leaven works its way. It expands. We had this thing called friendship bread. Have you ever had friendship bread? Anyone have friendship bread? The principle of it is creepy. It really is. Because you're eating bread from like the 1600s or something. This has been in my family for 1600 years. I struggle going to Plato's closet and looking at somebody that wore the same shoes already. I'm not trying to buy those shoes, let alone eat bread from 1600 years ago. But... Friendship bread is this, I'm not even sure how it works. It freaks me out just because it's in a bag and someone says it's, you know, 400 years old or whatever. But it's the same, somehow, yeast spreads, right? Just a little bit actually multiplies and takes over a whole loaf. So all you need is just a little bit of a seed. I'm saying that word seed generously there. And all it does is need to germinate and that yeast germinates into the rest of the loaf and right there. It overtakes it, just the tiniest little bit. And Jesus says, beware of leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. What is he talking about that? What does he mean, beware of that? Little leaven goes the whole way through the loaf. I would submit to you this, that Jesus is telling us we need to have a clean mind, a clean heart, clean eyes, and clean ears that his word can move in our lives uninterrupted. What does he mean by that? Beware of the leaven. Just a little bit of leaven. Pharisees are good spiritual people. Rigorous in their spirituality. Good people. But yet just the tiniest bit of leaven of unbelief ruins the whole batch. So what's the the solution to this? The truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us, including myself, including you, whether you believe this or not, God will move in our lives. We'll see him do it. And then we, like the disciples, very shortly after, the next test will come our way and we'll forget the bread. Spiritual maturity, it's not about perfection. It's not about behavioral management to the point where I'm a perfect person. I would say that spiritual maturity is that when we understand who God is in Christ, it's not just that I... Don't ever forget the bread. 
That's not spiritual maturity. The truth is you're going to forget, if not the bread, you're going to forget to pay the bill. You're going to forget to be a great husband, a great wife, a great friend. You're going to forget. You're, you're going to do that. And the goal is not, Jesus didn't say, did you, did you mess this thing up again? Really? You forgot the bread. You know what you need to do is remember better. You need to perfect who you are. No, he says, don't you understand? I'm the Savior, not you. I'm in control, not you. I have all power and all authority, not you. I think spiritual maturity is not just the ability to remember bread and do things right and not do wrong things, but when we screw up, is to be able to look at God and say, you're in control, not me. When I run out of bread, I'm able to turn to him and go, you're in control, not me. This isn't blaming God for dumb mistakes. This is recognizing the brokenness of our humanity. That when I come to the end of myself, spiritual maturity is not to stress out and freak out until God moves in our lives, but to recognize, you know what? The scripture tells us that he brought them to a desolate place. You know that God tests us not to reveal our failings, but his sufficiency. If we would just allow that to sink in. God brings you, tests you. Jesus, didn't ha- he, Jesus took them to a desolate place. That's the first passage in Mark chapter 6. Hey, let's, we need a break. Let's go to a desolate place. You think Jesus showed up and went, uh-oh. We should have went near a vineyard or we should have went near you know, a grain field so these people could have... No, he did it on purpose. I want to live a life, and I haven't been able to this point, but I want to be able to live a life that when God tests me or allows me to be tested, I recognize, first off, that the goal of this is not did I bring the bread or not. The goal is I serve the one that can multiply the bread. Eleven of the Pharisees is an internal anxiousness that negotiates, that tries to control, tries to figure things out. My prayer is that we would allow God to transform our minds to see reality from his perspective, not ours. If you haven't seen God move in your life, I'd be happy to share some stories with you of what's happened in my life, and I'd love to be able to pray with you that God would move in yours. I've seen him do so many things. There's a great phrase that kind of encompasses it. I've seen too little to understand, but too much to deny. I've seen God move in my life in miraculous ways. In this church, we've seen him. When we transitioned buildings, we needed a place to go. I was freaking out. God, what are we going to do? We're closing down. Next thing you know, God gives us this building. This is a sign. What is the sign? Any time in my life when I come into a place where I need God to open up a building or open up finances, he already gave me the sign. The sign is to point to a greater reality. I am now responsible for what I've seen God do in my life. When you see God move one way, I'm not allowed to check out and say, well, I don't really need that anymore. I've seen him move. I want to encourage you. Look back at your personal history with God. See what he's done in your life. Instead of going around the mountain over and over and over and over, see what God's already done in your life and see rather than asking God to invade your normal, say, Lord, with this new year, I want to begin to see from your perspective, not mine. Can we do that together? Amen. Let's stand together this morning if we can.
Kenny, do you mind coming forward with the worship team? God wants to renew our thinking. He really does. I'm convinced that I'm not just supposed to live my life and I can occasionally drop these little bombs on me. I don't think that makes sense with anything in life. I don't feel I'm just supposed to do my best. He helps me out. I keep screwing up. And I live this constant. I don't know if you ever feel like that. You feel stuck. God, I know what you want. Oh, look what he did. Next week. God, where are you? Look what he did. Ah, Where are you? A trial of job comes, a trial of friendship, relationship, whatever. Fill in the blank there. And we live in this state of just being paralyzed with fear, anxiety. I want to pray for you this morning that God would transform your normal. How many people have seen somebody that they've prayed for that was physically ill, healed? Just raise your hand this morning. Physically, I'm not talking about just got better, but they were healed. That there was something that, raise your hand for me. If you can. You prayed for something and you saw, now, I didn't, I don't have enough money to pay all you to raise your hands. If I did, I wouldn't. So you've seen God do something. You've seen God do something. We have an opportunity then. How many people have seen God with their finances? Very difficult. Just raise your hand for me real quick. Have you seen God come through and finance? What about jobs? Somebody with jobs. What about restoring relationships that you thought this is never going to work out? I've got, I've got a friend back. Now I'm looking here. You only get to see the people in front of you. The vast overwhelming majority of us have seen God do something in our lives like that. I can go on and on and on and on, whatever that looks like, where you've seen God do something. Now, we have a responsibility there. We can either get back in the boat with Jesus and the first time something goes wrong, go, oh, I forgot the bread and freak out. Or we can go, you know what? I'm not sure how this thing's going to work out, but I know who's in the boat with me. This is all I have. God wants to transform our normal, not just interrupt it. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you that you've touched in this room people's lives on a consistent basis. Lord, we've seen you perform physical healings, physical healings. Lord, we've seen you provide jobs, finances, repair relationships, Lord, that were literally impossible situations. Jesus, this morning we recognize that unbelief isn't a matter of inexperience. It's actually hardness of the heart. So, Father, we ask that you would transform our hearts this morning, that we would walk away with a new perspective, that we wouldn't just have the ears or the eyes, the capacity to see or hear you, but, Lord, that you would enlighten those, turn those senses on, so that when we come to a trial or a test, I can see what you're doing and I can hear what you're doing, not live in a state of confusion. Jesus, I thank you for the move of your spirit this morning, for the move of your power in our hearts and our minds. 
And I'm praying, God, you wouldn't interrupt our normal, but you would transform it. I ask this in Christ's beautiful name.